the way I think about it is there's technological shocks to our economy and there's some technological shocks that improve processes like 10% or 30%. And every now and then there's a technological shock that will improve the economy 10 times or even 30 times. And so is this one of the cases that is going to improve the economy 20 times, 30 times? I'm not sure, but it definitely has the potential. Welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Hey everyone, it's Deng, Chief Editor co-host of A Bit Cryptic. This interview is part of a trek I did in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where I spent years in grad school and working it was always pegged as a rigid work culture, essentially command and control kind of environment, lacking innovation. But I always knew there's been an innovative side to DC. It's an innovation hub for those in the crypto and blockchain space. So this episode, I interview Professor Jim Liu. He's teaching at the Johns Hopkins University School of Business. His expertise is in machine learning, AI, high finance, and hedge funds. But He's lending his expertise to a medical startup to tap blockchain as a novel way to use data, tackle modern health crises like the opioid epidemic. This is something that I hear on national public radio all the time. So it's something that a lot of folks can relate to. Now, as a multi-prong approach, uh, Jim talks about the need for public-private sector collaboration at the federal and state level and also the need for blockchain practitioners to educate regulators so that they can find a responsible way to break down data silos. If you're into social impact, big data analytics, regulations, and what's happening in the capital city, this is worth checking out. Hey everyone, I'm sitting here in the nation's capital in Washington DC. So I've been talking with uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain pioneers in this area. I know folks don't think this is a, as a hub of innovation, but from, from what I've seen, there's some fascinating things happening here. Uh, I've been interviewing with a, a cryptocurrency hedge fund who's actively investing in, in China. I'll be interviewing uh, someone at the World Bank Blockchain Innovations Lab just as a, you know, a casual informational interview. They recently launched their lab and kind of focusing on a, a lot of social impact type use cases. So uh, it'll be a, a fascinating discussion there. So look for those. But... But really, uh, right now, I have the pleasure of saying next to Professor Jim Liu. He's teaching at the Johns Hopkins University School of Business. He's also a, a senior advisor at BlockMedX. His his area of interest is, is really kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence, and, and most recently uh, taking a deep plunge into blockchain. I discovered him from a presentation he made at the Chamber of Digital Commerce, where you talk about, you know, how, how to use a machine learning and, and be able to tap the novel data, the new kind of data that blockchain provides. And so uh, he'll share his thoughts on that work. And lastly, just like all of our guests, I want to glean from Jim, you know, what are his thoughts on, on where the cryptocurrency market and, and the blockchain industry is and, and where it's going. But before we delve into all that, I, I really love to hear from you, Jim, you know, like, how did you first get involved with crypto? Sure. Very nice to uh, be here, Dang. And um, I listened to a couple of your podcasts. It was really, really good. You have some seriously uh, impressive speakers there. So how did I get started? So I'm most proud that I'm from um, Norman, Oklahoma. 
there's this sort of history of Sooners and Boomers, and the Sooners are the ones who went off to get their lands earlier, and the Boomers are the ones who sort of waited for the Canada boom, and then you know they sort of participated there. And so the, this blockchain, this blockchain and cryptocurrencies, I sort of see it at the stage where the Sooners are running out there and they're sort of learning what's going on there. I actually got pulled into the whole blockchain industry through a student. So the student of mine was telling me to look at Bitcoins. And uh, similar to sort of other uh, financial professionals, <laughs> when you first hear Bitcoins, the first thing you think about is Jamie Dimon and how Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, says, oh, this is like total fraud. It's a scam. He's really bearish on um, Bitcoins. That's basically the response I had to my student. I said, why are you wasting your time there? You know, this is a shady part of finance. Don't all the Bitcoin traders go to jail? And, you know, wasn't there some really bad transactions going on with this type of currency? Luckily, you know, this student was very persistent. His name is LeVar. He's actually at the Maryland Pension Fund right now. And he said, oh, no, 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 professor, professor, you have to really look into this. It's really, really interesting. I listened to him and I decided to spend a little bit of time and really dig in to understand what was going on with uh, Bitcoins. And of course, you start with the uh, Satoshi paper. And as an academic, you know, you read the paper, you look at the citations, you read the citations, and you start thinking about the implications of any type of new innovative thought. And this is actually coming in fintech. When you actually read the paper and you read the citations and you start, you know, looking online, it becomes really, really fascinating because it's trying to solve a very, very simple problem. But before that particular time was not solved, and basically this is it's a double double spend problem, and it, it's, it does so in an environment that's really fascinating because the ecosystem is open to anyone who can participate. So anyone can sign up and you know start mining bitcoins, and anyone can get a copy of this ledger, and you know in that sense it starts to sort of shift the traditional ways that people do transactions and businesses and so forth. And then once you start sort of really delving into it, you realize there's a fundamental question that every industry can be disrupted with. And the question is, does your industry have a middleman? And uh, if it is, if it does, then theoretically, this whole concept of the blockchain, which under which is the technology that the Bitcoin is built on, can actually disrupt that. And so then when you think about that, just, oh my goodness, you're like, whoa, this is serious implications. And, you know, whether it's going to um, happen or not, that's yet to be determined. But it makes you, it makes us, or, you know, it makes you as an academic, but also me as an entrepreneur, really think about, you know, how explosive this technology could be. And I think that's when I came to the conclusion, oh, this is very, very interesting. And I was like, wow, what are the implications of this um, technology? And, you know, the way I think about it is there's technological shocks to our economy. And there's some technological shocks that improve processes like 10% or 30%. And every now and then there's a technological shock that will improve the economy 10 times or even 30 times. And so is this one of the cases that is going to improve the economy 20 times, 30 times? I'm not sure, but it definitely has the potential. So that, 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 then I got really into it and I studied a lot of cryptocurrencies. I learned all the nuances, read a ton of white papers, probably spent too much time reading these white papers. <laughs> it, it's, it's a very fascinating industry. As far as I'm concerned, we're sort of in the early innings of this. So we mm -hmm. don't know truly how this is going to play out. But I, I absolutely was so convinced that this is something that students should learn about. Yeah. That I talked to some of the faculty at Johns Hopkins Carey Business School, and I said we should have a blockchain course. Right. I've been teaching a big data machine learning course. 
and also some advanced hedge funds and entrepreneurial courses. And uh, they eventually came to the conclusion and they, they agreed that, you know, we should have a blockchain course. So we're actually going to launch our first uh, blockchain course in the business school in the fall. And I think, you know, we're really excited about that. And, you know, basically I wanted to teach the basics, right, at an MBA level. I mean, there may be a little bit of programming, but not, this is not a computer science department. But I think it's, it's very interesting from the perspective of how can you use this tool as a potential business leader or someone coming out to the business world and then thinking about uh, potential disruptions. And the other way to think about it is if your competitor is all loaded up with blockchain engineers, what are the threats to your uh, business and organization? You know, my goal right now is to educate as many MBA students as I can and sort of give them a tool that I think is going to be very, very useful uh, for them in their career in the next couple of years. So this is targeted towards MBA students. So that... That's fascinating because I've, I've noticed blockchain classes have been popping up at, at major campuses across the country, including business schools. I think one of the driving factor here probably is the explosion of the crypto market and, you know, by market cap and, and with Bitcoin. And so, but at, at Johns Hopkins, there's several other practitioners too, right? Because uh, I know at the Center for Information Security, there's Matthew Green, who's a uh, is an affiliate of the Zcash team. And I believe another professor too, uh, who's teaching Bitcoin from a cryptography standpoint at that center. And so I'm just curious if you had any interactions with them or... Yeah, absolutely. And Matthew Green is one of the pioneers in Zcash. So he's an amazing resource to sort of discuss the origins of this market. Also in the computer science department, there's a, a tremendous amount of talented faculty there who are looking at different aspects of technology cryptography and so forth, in order to sort of understand Bitcoins and blockchains and cryptocurrencies, you absolutely have to understand how these hashing algorithms work and so forth, right? And what are the different types of hashing algorithms. And so it's fascinating. I'm glad we have such resources available. I have some friends in the computer science department, math stat department, and then the physics department. So we talk about these things all the time. And some of the conversations Get, get very scary. And I recall one conversation I had with one of the professors and basically he said, hey, look, if we can figure out the first generation of this random number, whatever it is, you can sort of back into everything else. And that means this whole thing can crumble. <laughs> and I was like, that's all it takes? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's pretty scary. But at the same time, I was like, well, who has the computational power in order to do that? And he said, probably, you know, very few organizations, right? And and the other thing to think about is what happens when quantum computers come around. So this will disrupt the whole industry because a lot of this is based on figuring out these puzzles. Bitcoin is based on a SHA-256 algorithm, and you're sort of putting these nonces in, and you're trying to set up a bunch of zeros. Once the computational power increases tremendously, then we have to come up with something else. Right. So the whole industry is going to develop. And what's fascinating is that as new technology is injected or new discoveries are made, and a lot of them are coming from the ivory tower, then people have to readjust and they have to pivot their business strategy. Right. Things are moving really fast all the time in this industry. So you have to stay on top of sort of abreast of what's going on out there. Right. So and so I think that's that's a good foundational discussion. I think to to help folks understand how this is being done in the field, you know, so, so perhaps now we can jump into uh, how are you deploying this, right? And and maybe uh, Yidu, he, he's my co-host. Uh, Yidu, by the way, is a healthcare product manager. Uh, he's my former classmate, but uh, I, I think we'll, we'll have him kind of lead 
the discussion with Jim now into the, the work that he's doing, marrying up blockchain and machine learning. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Yidu Wen. I work for a uh, healthcare consulting company here in Washington, D.C. I met Jim actually a few times in D.C. Very nice to actually have you on the show today. I think specifically wanted to tap into your knowledge about kind of the intersection between data and healthcare and blockchain uh, and also some other innovative technologies. I'm also, myself, I'm a, I'm a huge data nerd. I'm a firm believer <laughs> that, you know, changing the healthcare, changing the world one spreadsheet at a time is my motto. And I think, you know, there's with this emerging technology along with AI and machine learning, there's so many new opportunities. Just curious in terms of your thoughts around, in your opinion, what is the current biggest challenge in terms of mass adoption of blockchain healthcare field? Absolutely. So you mentioned data, and I think that's really important at this stage where we are with the technology of AI. And so I kind of envision a world, what would it be like if all the healthcare records and data was publicly available and suppose that we could somehow, you know, make sure that, you know, nobody's identified in, in that data set. I mean, what could we do there? And, you know, all I can think about is like having massive casual competitions about how to solve cancer problems or at least sort of diagnose it and predict it really well. And I, I think that we would be so much more advanced in terms of the healthcare that we could provide, you know, people of the world, people in the U.S. and so forth. It sort of begs this question, the data is there. However, you have a lot of regulations sort of restraining this data. And, you know, I, I sort of talk, I sort of think of this as data fiefdoms, right? People are trying to justify themselves by sort of protecting this data because of certain regulations. But at the same time, the unintended consequences, I think, are that, you know, we're holding back healthcare innovation, especially I don't think people sort of really predicted how powerful machine learning and AI could become in order to sort of solve some healthcare problems. But if we knock down all these walls and we provided this data freely available and we incentivize people to go out there and, you know, solve certain problems, cancer, not cancer and whatnot, I think that, you know, we can have a massive sort of explosion of innovation. One of the things, obviously, that we have to sort of figure out is how do we truly make patient anonymized, right? Mm -hmm. But I think if someone could solve that problem and, and we allow this data to exist out there, especially, you know, across different institutions and organizations, that could be very powerful. Like, you know, my whole career in finance was basically taking two data sets that nobody thought really should go together and finding a relationship. And one data set would be financial markets, which I understand. And another data would be sort of emerging so, sort of social media type data, whether it's Twitter, whether it's crowdsource uh, sentiment analysis, or whether it's, you know, geolocations. And this combination across different data sets is very, very powerful. And we're starting to see some organizations like the FDA putting out some RFIs and so forth in regards to try to combine these data sets. So that's a good thing. I still think we have to sort of make sure that everyone is comfortable by anonymizing patients' data because I think that's very important too. You compare the U.S. to someplace like Asia or China, whereby, you know, the data is freely available, right? And so, I, you know, I would predict that they have just as many sort of powerful algorithms as we have, and they're going to have a jump on this healthcare, at least setting up the problems and finding solutions um, to some of that that innovation, which which I think unfortunately will force us the U.S. to respond. You know, I think that's a good thing for humanity at the end of the day because healthcare is a public good across the whole world, right? So, perhaps you could talk a little bit about the opioid epidemic and and what you're trying to do there because this is. This is a, a, a devastating health crisis that, that folks can relate to. And, you know, so what is the problem there and, and you, what is you're trying to solve? 
Okay, so I'm going to give a big plug to uh, BlockNetX. They're going to do a token raise, and some, the, the founder, Michael uh, Brenner, and also Alex Antonio, he's at, he, Alex was actually a student of mine in the Big Data Machine Learning course, and he was taking that course, and he was actually a doctor in nuclear medicine at Johns Hopkins, super smart guy. I think he has like a couple of patents associated with him as well. So anyhow, Alex is taking the course, and he tells me, oh, Professor Liu, you know, I'm going to take this job at McKinsey. I said, oh, perfect. McKinsey is a good, high-ranked consulting firm. And then after a while, we stayed, stayed in touch. She said, I'm going to quit my job at McKinsey, and I'm going to, I'm going to join a, a startup. And I was like, seriously? Yeah, I mean, this must be a really good startup. What, what, what is this startup? And he's like, oh, BlockMedX. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And he's like, well... We're going to issue a token, we're going to raise funds, and we're going to solve a really important problem, which is the opioid crisis in America. And so then I started looking into that, and I said, wow, this is this is a serious problem, right? Originally, I'm from Oklahoma, so you know I could understand the devastation across you know some of the states that this causes. So I was thinking about this, and he said, we're going to use a blockchain, and we're going to use this technology in order to solve this problem. And I was like, wow, this is pretty interesting, because you can actually use a blockchain in order to understand the truth and transparency and sort of understand where things are and keep an account of who owns what or you know who's transferring what to whom and so then if you think about it in the opioid crisis there's a bad actor there but we don't know who that bad actor is i mean it could be a doctor it could be the patient it could be the pharmacist it could be the um, producers of these pills it could be the suppliers or distributors we don't know because there's no really no transparency given the difficulties of sort of the healthcare industry now if you could just put 100% transparency on this industry, could you sort of understand who the bad actors are? Absolutely. Could you shame them to stop prescribing so many opioids? Uh, if you're in a city like, I don't know, Norman, Oklahoma, and you're a doctor and you're prescribing too many opioids per capita or too many pills per capita, yeah, you could say, hey, look, this doctor is prescribing too many, right? And absolutely provide transparency and then sort of uh, rein in potential bad actors. But we don't know if it's a doctor. Is it the patients who's running around and copying you know, these prescriptions? We, we don't know. So this is a great industry that, a pro- or actually a problem that the blockchain could solve. And so this is what these guys are trying to do. They're trying to sort of improve, trying to solve head-on the opioid crisis. And the way that I see it is that if they can sort of pull this off and the challenge is not necessarily the technology, but sort of, sort of bringing all the parties together, which is the regulators, which is the corporations, which is, you know, the doctors and so forth, and the pharmacists then can absolutely make a big dent into the problem, even go be, be so bold to say that we could probably solve this problem. And, you know, how does machine learning come into the play? Well, suppose you have the data that's available to you. It seems to be the case that some people get addicted to these pills faster than others, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we can come up with a way in order to predict okay, you know, you just had a baby, you had a C-section, here's some pills, you know, pain, pain, you know, relievers. Uh, we won't give you so many because, you know, you're, you are, you are, you, you have this sort of predisposition in order to get hooked on these things faster than the average person. So let's, let's monitor you very carefully, right? I think, why couldn't we do that? Do we have the technology? Yeah. Does the data exist? Yeah. So what's really holding us back? Well, it's us. <laughs> it's our emotions, our egos, our quests for profits and so forth and justifying our positions here and there. And so that that's a problem I think the technology could solve. It's more of a coordination about the, the counterparties or the stakeholders in the ecosystem. So can you, can you explain a bit about the 
the design choice of of this this blockchain ecosystem. So it seems like there's a a token involved. So how how is the token used here to align the incentives of different players on the, on the supply chain? Because when I think about a supply chain problem, right, it's it's sort of mutualizing the the trust, incentivizing the players to to share data on a common platform. So I just lo- love to hear your thoughts. I mean, is it is this built on on a, an open permissionless blockchain like Ethereum? Is it built on a hyperledger? Or? I believe that they're going to use the Ethereum platform. So they're going to issue a token. And so in order, the, the, the token's utility is going to be based on as a user. And if you want to get a prescription, you're going to have to sort of bring this token. And, you know, if you're using the token, you get some discounts in terms of participating the pharmacist has to sort of part of that transaction too, and they'll get some benefits. I think the key to use a token in this system is to understand the economic value that each participant gains in it, right? Because, you know, the token, as far as I, I understand it, to become a utility token, it's kind of like a token in Chuck E. Cheese, right? Where you go in Chuck E. Cheese, I don't know if you remember Chuck E. Yes. Cheese. Yes. And, and you have these tokens there, and you can use play video games and all this other stuff, but once you leave the ecosystem, it's worthless, right? You can't stick those Chuck E. Cheese tokens anywhere else. If you're in that ecosystem and you're dealing with doctors and pharmacists and you know you're the patient, then you can the token has utility in that ecosystem. Once you leave that ecosystem, then the tokens are worthless. And so that's how they're sort of understanding how to use that token, the, the dynamics in order to incentivize. But I, I think at the end of the day they want that data. So they want to be able to have more transparency to see and identify who's putting who's prescribing these pills who's sort of requesting too many pills and which doctors are potentially giving out too many prescriptions, right? And so that's the crux of it. I've heard some, there, there are startups that so they're pivoting their business model here and there. There is some technology that exists out there where they can sort of mark each pill. <laughs> so if you swallow the pill, you know, somehow it's okay for your body. And so that could be very interesting in terms of their business strategy. Right now, they went up to New York at the consensus, I think, annual conference and you know, they won some awards, so I'm really proud of them. But they are sort of a startup, and startups, you know, to survive, it's it's difficult, right? It's very hard. But at the same time, they're doing everything right in terms of finding the right partners, thinking about this problem very carefully, and then sort of executing on it. They have a lot of, my understanding is they have a lot of smart contract developers on their team and so forth. So they're building everything, all the technology in-house. They're not really outsourcing that. As I'm listening to them and learning from them and, you know, sort of participating, I'm learning this whole industry, right? After that, I understood a little bit more about how to do an ICO. Of course, I bring that knowledge right into the classroom and make all the other students, you know, think about doing an ICO, right? I'm kind of learning at the same time as this industry is developing and then bringing it back in the classroom and challenging students and groups in order to sort of try to uh, come up with business ideas. From an academic point of view, issuing a token is just another way to raise capital and the markets are pretty efficient and it seems to be an attractive way for startups to raise capital, right? And so we're seeing more and more of these launches. Some of these companies are raising capital on the order of you know, billions of dollars, so it's surprising, right? I mean, I thought this would only be sort of a raise from you know one to two million dollars at most, 20 to 30 million dollars, but then you saw a couple of hundred million dollar raises. And then, you know, recently we've seen one or two over billion dollar raise and it's just shocking and surprising. And intellectually, I'm really challenged. Who's going to put a billion dollars into this sort of startup, right? That's where we're at right now. And things are developing very quickly. But I think 2017 was the, the year where there was a lot of hype and everybody sort of understood Bitcoins and how to get them. And then 2018 is the year of, can you actually make it work? 
So everyone's sort of looking for that blockchain startup that is actually going to use it to work. And some people, if you want to be cynical about it, you could say, well, the only thing that really works is Bitcoins, okay, so based on their blockchain. And then Ethereum's platform, which puts a lot of startups on that, works. But we haven't seen one of these things really take off. I mean, you could argue that CryptoKitties sort of is taking off. Okay, fine. So maybe it's gaming, right? But is there anything else? Is there something that has a social slant on it, like BlockMedX? I came back from New York, and there's the UN is trying to use blockchain for impacting for good, right? And so people are running around, and there are really smart people who have a lot of resources. They're trying to use blockchain in order to solve really big problems. And, you know, can we make it work? jury is still out we don't know yet right maybe we'll see it in 2018 maybe we'll see it in 2019 so that's sort of where we at right now right so there's several things that i just want to clarify because i know we might have a broad audience so one thing is you mentioned icos that, that stands for initial coin offering and so the project that he's advising is trying to use that uh, as a channel to crowdfund so it's basically crowdfund on the blockchain the other thing is we're talking about the opioid crisis, right? That's essentially this uh, misuse of drugs on painkillers. So this could be both prescribed and non-prescribed drugs, right? And so uh, unless you've been sleeping under a rock, you know, this is a major public health crisis. And the other thing is machine learning. That's essentially leveraging uh, big data and trying to uh, learn from it in an automated fashion. That's point one. And point two is making prediction about some behavior, some pattern. Okay. With, With this Blockchain project that you're advising, um, Medex, uh, BlockMedX, Block excuse me, uh, how do you intend to extract the data and, and learn from it and make prediction? And, and really, what, what is the end game? You know, like if you make prediction and say you have some uh, measurable uh, impact of accuracy, I mean, what is it going to be used for and how is it going to be actionable? Absolutely. There's a coordination that needs to occur between the regulators and the um, industry participants, right? And that coordination is give us data. And so once again, we're at that give us data in order for them, you know, them to do something, right? Once, if you have all the data, you can absolutely do a ton with it. But the question is, how do you sort of navigate HIPAA compliance? How do you navigate sort of across different states? How do you navigate between, you know, patient-doctor confidentiality and sort of privileges and so forth, right? So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts here, but the reality is we assume that the data is freely available. We anonymize everyone so we don't know who they are. We can absolutely sort of put a big light on this through using the blockchain technology. And then we could actually build machine learning algorithms in order to have predictions. Okay, patient A has a you know 99% probability that if you give them more than five of these sort of pills, they, they may become addicted because of X, Y, Z. And whereas patient B, maybe there's like a 20% probability after giving them five pills that they'll get addicted. So these are really important sort of considerations that are, they're, they're sitting inside the data. But the tension here is everyone has the best intentions doing their jobs. But at the same time, it's kind of holding back the, the potential innovation that can really help solve this problem. But this is not uncommon. This is pretty common that people have the data. They're not willing to share the data for reasons X, Y, Z. So the, the industry is sort of sort of waiting <laughs> for somebody to come and sort of disrupt it or whatever it may be. I think this right now, as I see it, in BlockMedX's challenge is to bring these parties together to the table, explain their solutions and have them give them some data to pilot. And they're getting some traction at different, you know, like, you know, whether it's Hopkins or Cleveland Columbus or Mayo, you know, they're making some pretty good traction here and there. So I think at the end of the day, most entrepreneurs are successful if they're persistent enough. <laughs> and this will be another one of those things, right? So if they, they can 
continue to raise capital and stay alive and they're persistent enough and they're knocking off knock on enough doors, I think that they will have success, right? You know, I'm, I'm hoping for the best, but we should all know that the, the probability of an entrepreneur starting a company is one out of 10, right? Yeah. It's really hard. I mean, these, these are, I mean, there, there's a whole nother discussion about regulating, you know, ICOs and initial point offerings are an amazing thing. Uh, and the difficulties of regulators is they're trying to understand what's going on here. My solution would be, hey, just be transparent. If you're going to do an ICO, give me your social security card. I mean, your number, give me your EIN number and maybe give me, you know, the, your CVs of your founders. And if you really want to monitor this, say, you know, put all your financial transactions in the blockchain. And thereby, if you're going to come do an ICO in America, fine. You know, without those pieces of information, the regulators will absolutely see if there's any fraud or fraudulent activities or, you know, oversee activities that, you know, are dangerous. So, you know, why not do that? I mean, the whole United States of America has been built on innovations and entrepreneurships. And, you know, this is just another one of those things, right? I think that there's ways to do it properly so that the regulators can do their jobs, which is protect the small investors, but moreover, provide transparency in this thing. The the majority of people that I've met so far in the community that are trying to do ICOs and startups are very credible. They're very sincere. They want to do, they want to solve a big problem. They don't know what to do because the regulations is not crystal clear. And, you know, one thing I want to sort of point out is there was a guy named Arthur Levitt, who was the head of the SEC a long time ago. And one of the best things that he did at that particular time was he said, hey, look, mutual funds, you got to make it very understandable what you're offering to the clients. So use simple language. And so he did that. And the whole industry just exploded in terms of activities and jobs and so forth. And I think that we need something like that here, you know, for ICOs. These are the rules. Follow the rules and you're going to be fine, right? Because I don't think anybody's intentions is to fleece America out of money or whatever it is. I think they're sincerely trying to start businesses, but we should all know that it's really hard to start a business and sustain a business. But as long as you have the proper disclosures and you have the proper tracking systems, blockchain would be perfect for that, and you proper transparency. I mean, why not? Why not let you know people use their innovative skills in America and create jobs? And Sears is going under. You have all that space. The government could buy all those Sears departments and set up some you know ICO training and programming, and <laughs> you know pump in some local capital there and let these guys try to start some companies. I think that would be great, right? Put a lot of people back to work and so forth. Some of these ideas are very aggressive and so forth, but I absolutely think that, you know, America should do um, stuff like that and be aggressive here because, you know, the leaders are going to really, really um, take over a lot. And also it's a chance in order to sort of innovate, not only on the blockchain side, but also on the machine learning AI side. And that's a skill set that's in high demand. So if you can learn how to do machine learning and AI well, and you have data that's available to you, and you're solving a business problem, you know, chances are you'll do it more than once in your life. And you'll probably create many different companies will provide a lot of jobs for many people out there. So yeah, you do. I mean, you, you graduated from Johns Hopkins, and you're, you're a healthcare practitioner and blockchain enthusiast. I mean, what's your impression on this? Is this a worthy effort? Or is this, is this going to pan out? Is it going to be a... a a major model for for the industry absolutely i feel like there's so much potential as jim mentioned you know in this industry in this particular space healthcare to utilize blockchain we keep going back to data right i mean there's so many data initiatives uh, on the different even federal state uh, in the private sector trying to liberalize the, the availability of data one example i can think of is cms uh, which is central for medicare medicaid services recently uh, launched the um Blue Button 2.0, which is a data initiative to make data available for private users, to, you know, on the Medicare population. So it's 
specifically, I can think of this will be a really good use case for blockchain uh, if we can operate the use the data and uh, put it in the sandbox and then uh, do some t test piloting piloting in the CMS healthcare data. That would be a great way to to to, to implement our blockchain, whether it's permission or permissionless. So that's one example. There's so many other new initiatives that's going to allow us to to work with the data, assuming it's compliance to your points, you know, that privacy is the biggest issue in healthcare, right? That's might that's might be something that's slightly different from finance, because we really care about the privacy of the patients. We want to make sure that we get the patient consent before we can do any any uh, new initiatives. So but all in all I feel like there's so much potential to work with, you know, whether it's in drugs, whether it's in um, the the provision of care, the providers aspect. There's there's so many ways we can explore. So I'm really excited for what's to come in the five or ten years yeah absolutely absolutely i think any initiative in order to get the data outside from organizations you know federal organizations and agencies and putting it out there is is very very good and then that's very helpful to sort of move the innovation uh forward maybe blockchains is a way that organizations are rethinking how they're sort of allowing their data to come out there but the way I see it, you know, there's blockchains, the um, data structure, and there's blockchains, the algorithm, and there's blockchains that consist of everything, right? And there's applications of blockchains, which could be Bitcoins or Ethereum and so forth. But, you know, I, may, maybe the real benefit is the blockchains data structure where we get this data out of organizations and sort of put it, put it out in the public, whether it's a blockchain or whatever it may be, and allowing people access to that in order to do different, put up AIs, on top of that and analyze it and do some research. Uh, that could be a real, real benefit, I think, across society. And so will blockchains be known for pulling the data out? <laughs> the conversation, everyone's excited about it, right? You know, I, I, I was talking to a couple of uh, friends and I said, yeah, let's get your data out of your um, agencies. Let's just put it in a data pool. They, they weren't very excited at all. And I said, oh, no, 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 not the data pool. Let's put it in a blockchain. And they all got excited, right? <laughs> and so is, is that going to be the benefit of blockchain? We don't know, right? After three years, we'll sort of have a little bit more understanding. There are, you know, different countries that are more aggressive, uh, how they're implementing the blockchains. And Estonia comes to mind. Australia comes to mind. And so I, I think that's great. Singapore comes, you know, they're doing things. And so we do have some sooners or thought leaders in that space. And we're absolutely going to watch them. And hopefully they'll sort of figure this out and um, can follow them quickly um, behind. But, you know, with that said, you know, innovation with the technology, with the entrepreneurs, you know, you put a little bit of capital in there and you, you mix that up pretty good. Um, we're going to see some pretty interesting things, right? You know, I run a small consulting company called SoCat for my two daughters, Sophie and Catherine. And we, we're using machine learning and AI and also the blockchains in order to solve problems for helping people who are granting money understand the risk of their organizations we're also using it to predict calculate the probability that a grantee will receive a grant and also we're sort of sort of toying around with the idea of how can we use this blockchain in order to store certain certificates so for example you know i'm going to teach this blockchain course i'm, I'm trying to construct this way to take pictures of my students and give them a certificate and it'll be stuck in a blockchain so if anyone's like did you take that course you can just refer them to a blockchain and that would be a way to store the truth and there's a lot of really interesting things you can do with the blockchain, you know, besides sort of, you know, cryptocurrencies and so forth. And I think a lot of people out there are trying to figure it out. It's open territory. And I definitely encourage, especially, you know, students to try things out. If you're sitting around looking for an internship, jump on a startup that's going to do an ICO. You'll learn a, a tremendous amount. But, you know, also 
I think it, it, it's, it's very challenging because you may pick up the uh, Wall Street Journal or the New York Times one day and then all of a sudden regulation, the pendulum has swung the other side and now you have to pivot your business strategy or maybe all of a sudden, right, Bitcoins and Ethereums are not a security. Now they're, they're fine. So the SEC is not going to regulate them. And so you, you start moving forward in that direction. It, it, it's very fun. It's very challenging. I mean, it, it's, it's for students, I think it's... It's it's a wonderful learning experience, right? For a student, in order to understand all the different dimensions of the regulations, in order to understand that, also the business aspects, and also is there a demand there for the uh, the problem that you're trying to solve? Those are all fascinating. You know, I, I want to sort of discuss one last thing here. In the old days, I used to teach corporate finance, and there was like this balance sheet on one side with the assets, and the other side was the liabilities and the owner's equity. But now, in the new paradigm, what's happening is that there's the assets, potentially there's some liabilities, and this whole owner's equities, this could be the network or the token yeah. holders. Mm-hmm. And so the, the equity component is sort of stripped out, <laughs> and the benefits go to the network or the people who hold the tokens, and that's not in the current corporate finance textbooks. So this financial innovation is going to make us reteach how we're thinking about sort of firms and uh, companies. And uh, Dang mentioned a little bit earlier before this interview that you know, some of his friends were at uh, B-Token, right? Mm-hmm. Basically it's Airbnb, but instead of you know shareholders, I imagine that they're gonna launch a token and the token's gonna sort of you know accrue to the network. So you know, people are incentivized to continue to build that. But that could be any company. You could say Airbnb or Uber. Arguably you could say Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. Any company that has shareholders can potentially get disrupted under this, you know, fundamental sort of capital structure change. And I think that's really fascinating. And it's going to make me sort of readjust how I teach corporate finance. I absolutely have to sort of talk about this particular innovation when it comes to the capital structure. Yeah. So there you go, folks. Paradigms may be shifting. Other takeaways from, from our talk today with Professor Jim Liu is the success of innovation is now guaranteed. This technology potentially change how our society uh, coordinates decision. It could change existing power structures. You kind of have to be uh, bold and brave and, and innovate, kind of step out of, of the box a little bit. Um, and there are certainly people here in the nation's capital really uh, deeply involved in some of these projects. And, and Jim Liu is, is one of them. So Jim, like if people want to know more about you or, or your class or Sure. Uh, the project that you're advising, uh, where would they go? Yeah, so Block MedX is the, the company, the startup that's going to launch a token. So you just go out there and buy it like crazy. <laughs> when is that illegal to say? Right? I mean, we're in the gray zone, right? Am I a promoter? I find like as a professor, I become like well, a party promoter. Are, are you a celebrity? Yeah, you have a celebrity status? Like, definitely not a celebrity. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm happy to have conversations with people who want to disrupt their industries, you know, whether that's sort of a commercial conversation or an academic conversation. Um, I really enjoy the research aspect of it as well. And so, you know, if you're doing something really fascinating, you know, absolutely, I'd love to talk to you in D.C., if you're a student at Johns Hopkins, you better, you know, abs- business school student, you better absolutely sign up for the blockchain class. <laughs> and then, but I'm always open to have uh, conversations with people. And I think we're all going to learn this, how it's going to unravel uh, together. And so I think we should, uh, you know, we shouldn't be so harsh on sort of some of these innovators who are really pushing the envelope. We should sort of encourage them. The older I get, the more encouraging I'm, I'm of uh, people taking risks because I know how hard it is, right? Mm-hmm. 
So whenever people are taking, you know, big swings, especially using blockchains and AI and machine learning, you know, I try to encourage them and try to help them out as much as possible because I know I know how difficult it is to do such things, right? And it's it's easy to pick people's businesses apart. That's not hard. I think it's harder to sort of support them and figure out how connect the dots and see who you can introduce them to and so forth in order to um, make it successful because you know the, the odds are against you know most startups you know right out right out of the gate even if you have an amazing team it's just very difficult to um, sustain a business especially in the emerging technologies when a lot of people are trying to figure out what's going on there yeah please please reach out to me i'm happy to have more friends <laughs> well i'm sure you have quite a few you felt to to break the the limit of of contacts on LinkedIn and your, and your social media profiles. <laughs> but thanks again, Jim. We'll be re- releasing show notes and this video interview in, in other formats. So so keep an eye out. And then, and thanks again, Jim. Thanks a lot, Dang. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Bit Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor in chief, Dang Du. Show production and editing is done by the miracle maker, Joanna Marie Nicholas. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep it cryptic.